This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. So let me put it this way. Life is more difficult to create than food is. If God gives one life, how much more will he give him the food needed for its support? Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by Robert S. Canlish. It was preached in the late 19th century in Edinburgh, Scotland. Troy, I am loving having you stateside. Uh, same time zone now. So, well, not same time zone. The same same hemisphere. You know, we're it, it does make it zone. easier. Two central central timers oh, right now. We are a uh, hot dog. What a what a delight. <laughs> what a delight. It's it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, I don't remember the last time I was able to record on this, but you are still down a microphone. Yeah. Uh, so uh, again, apologies in advance. Uh, thanks for bearing with us on on Troy's uh, lack of a recording studio at the moment. Hopefully, hopefully next time we can get uh, Troy sounding a little bit better. But yeah, uh, we're still in the Tennessee office here. But I did have we do have a five star podcast review on Apple Podcasts that I wanted to read that came from the part of the reason I like this is just the username of the person is. Perch Juice. I don't think that's their um, birth certificate name. Perch, Perch Juice. Juice. But interesting. They said there's, there's a story behind that username. It's got to be right. There's. They said blessed by these testimonies. I am truly blessed by these testimonies and the sermons of these faithful servant saints. Jesus did not just use these men during their time on earth, but to make ripples throughout eternity. I can't thank you enough for sharing these treasures with me. So Perch Juice, thank you for leaving a five star review. If you have not left a five star podcast review, hopefully on Apple Podcasts, but anywhere you do it, there's we're getting like comments on spotify we get things on youtube so wherever you can leave it it is always helpful and we do appreciate it yeah absolutely today we're talking about robert s candlish who was a man that lived throughout the 1800s he, he was born in edinburgh in 1806 his father who uh, was a lecturer of medicine a very prominent prestigious figure but uh, sadly robert didn't get to know him because he died five weeks after he was born so um, his father passed away before he could form any living memory of him. His mother, from all accounts, the information we have about her indicates that she was supposedly a very beautiful woman. Like I think of like a a natural, you know, like we would think of like 
a, like a model, like a supermodel in today's day and age. Imagine that in the 1800s. And we know this because she was written about being very beautiful. There was a, a poet in the area in, in their hometown of Edinburgh. Um, supposedly, he's a relatively famous poet. I've never heard of him, but Robert Burns, like apparently people that I know that when I looked up his, his yeah. this poem, because I thought it was a strange thing to put uh, that there were a bunch of websites dedicated to it. And this poem showed up in all of it. It's a very short poem. And so I was like, you got to be at least somewhat famous for this many like websites and links and articles to it. So this Robert Burns, uh, I, I, I suppose, seems to be a big deal in the poetry circles. I don't really yeah. frequent those circles. I don't know. You could have fooled me, Troy. I thought, you know, if, if you strike me as any, it's the very artsy <laughs> poetry type. <laughs> He wrote a poem called Six Bellas, which uh, is, you know, it's, it's a, a word for beautiful women. Six beautiful women in the town. And her name is listed. She, so she's uh, listed as, quote, a beauty that could rival London or Paris. So uh, high claim. They weren't a wealthy family, though. You know, I guess she was ahead of her time as far as our modeling career because, she, you know, that, that wasn't something you got paid for, I guess, back back in that era. Be- beauty could only get you so far. Uh, at, at the funeral for uh, Robert's father, she didn't even wear the traditional funeral garbs because uh, she didn't want to spend money on them. You know, not, not, do out of, not out of a lack of respect, but because uh, she wanted to make sure her kids were taken care of and she wanted to put what money they had towards their family, you know, putting food in the food in their uh, stomachs uh, and didn't want to spend it on clothes. Reasonable. Sounds like sounds like a good mom. After Robert's father died, uh, their family moved to Glasgow uh, and his mother ended up opening a school for young ladies there. But Robert Candlish himself was never formally educated. Uh, and it seems like he might have had some health issues like that might have played into it and preventing him from getting a good education or maybe their poverty played into it as well. But he did end up going uh, to university and managed to uh, do all right there. We don't know when he became a Christian or what his conversion was like, but we do know that one of his oldest friends said of him that since he had known him, he had the spirit of one adopted by God. One more instance, I think, of his mom and the just role she played in his life, especially because he did not have his father. Uh, during his days kind of working as a tutor right after he finished school, he would go off to be a tutor for a famous man for a couple of years. And during that time, he had a real wrestling. He called it a time of spiritual darkness where he was really struggling with what he was supposed to do and where he was supposed to go. And reaching out to his mom for advice, she said, look, I can't help you. What you have to do is, quote, go to your Bible and pray to the Lord for light and he, you will get it. And so just this idea, again, he's going to his mom as kind of a, you know, a young man. What do I do? I'm having a trouble spiritually. And the mom saying, I wish I could tell you, but you're going to need to find the answer in prayer and in the Bible. And just that kind of conclusion, I think, of just the, the impact she had. Now, after his time of spiritual darkness, which we don't know a ton about what specifically he was wrestling with, uh, he decides that his call to go to ministry that he felt kind of in his life was sure and he gets ready to join and be at the pulpit of a church. But for a bit of kind of surprising twist here, it doesn't happen right away. He leaves university, has these couple years as a tutor, he gets over the spiritual darkness, he's ready to jump into ministry. But it will be five years before he has his own church parish. He kind of gets stuck 
as an interim traveling guy, never ever over his own church for a few years. Part of it was that they said his pulpit mannerisms were a bit weak. He would just kind of read his sermons. Other people said they didn't really trust the, his associates. They thought he was a part of a bad political or theological party. And he wasn't actually a part of that group. He, they would just associate with some of the men from that group because they were of his age. But despite all this, though, I think the, the bigger picture is that he felt certain about a call for ministry and yet the Lord had him wait and work in these other churches for five years before he was able to get to where he felt like he was supposed to be. In 1834, he arrived at the church that would eventually become the church that he'd end up spending the next 40 years of his life at, the church that he would eventually uh, grow into his old age and die at. And Candlish, uh, he was someone that worked under and believed in the work of Thomas Chalmers, who we've also done an episode on, fascinating episode. I recommend checking it out if you haven't listened to it already. And they had these dreams of raising up uh, schools in the churches and developing leaders in the church. Um, this was something that Chalmers really championed and, and something that Candlish had high ambitions towards implementing in his own church. And they worked on it really hard for a very long time, but this dream would eventually get shot down when him and Chalmers led what uh, would be called the disruption, which it was this whole thing that led to the Free Church of Scotland. Uh, again, we talk about it more in our Chalmers episode, but I just found it interesting that, I don't know, you can work, they worked really hard on this for a really long time, and it didn't re really ever become realized in the way that they wanted it to. Uh, and other things, you know, came out of it in their ministry. But to, uh, I don't know, I, I just found that it was interesting representative life to where you can, you, you can be trying to fulfill a vision so hard for so long and then uh, it go in a different direction. And that whole era of life is just something that uh, becomes part of history and, and doesn't ever see that fulfillment. It's, it's sad when it happens, but... Um, we see it from time to time. In fact, I think it'd be neat to do, I don't know, maybe a revived conversation about that because we yeah. often don't really talk about, yeah, those visions that were never fully realized. We just talk about the things that were eventually accomplished, um, which are, you know, worth celebrating, of course. But sometimes, yeah, instances like this where you work for, you know, almost a decade plus on a project that never, never came to fruition, fuller fruition, fruition. I don't know, just from just from an analytical, historical point of view, I find that stuff interesting because we can relate with that. We have things like that like that in our own lives. Yeah, I, I would actually be, we should put that down on the Revive Conversation docket because I can I'll think of so many, so many examples and so many uh, interesting stories. And I can also think of the reverse too, where there were people where everyone was like, are you still doing that? That is not going to go anywhere. Hmm. And then, you know, after 10 years where you think like that, definitely that ship has sailed, it actually turned out to be what they're most famous mm -hmm. for. So it's crazy how you can kind of find um, both sides of that, that example. Um, but yeah, I can think of several, put it on the revived conversation list. Yeah. We'll have to have that conversation later this summer. There's a lot of variables in life and it's not yeah. necessarily a bad thing or a good thing. And it doesn't, it's, no, it's not necessarily, you know, in, in all the ways that could or couldn't play into yeah. God's design and, and will. Uh, it's interesting to think about and talk about. But I think, too, that sometimes God uses a project that you think was going to be one thing to prepare you for a project that comes afterwards. Um, but we'll save the rest of this thought for the revived conversation. Because, <laughs> man, I tell you, I could go on that from for a while. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Canlish worked tirelessly his whole life. He's one of those guys who it's too many things to fit into one episode. Um, just examples of things he was involved with. He was a leader in what was called disruption. Uh, a church planter in his own town helped set up two smaller churches. He ended up being a principal of a Christian college, uh, a leader of what was called the Assembly of Churches in Scotland. It was a very important uh, interactions he was doing there. He helped found a newspaper called The Witness, uh, which there was a guy he worked with, and then that guy and him would put out all these articles and thoughts. However, the guy he worked with ended up committing suicide and kind of took the newspaper down with him. He helped pass his ministry on to a very famous person too, Alexander White. Now, we've done several episodes on Alexander White. We haven't done any in a very long time, but he was an excellent, excellent preacher. And if you want to go listen to some sermons by him, you should definitely do so. Now, at one point, Kalish had these weird stories, too. For example, at one point, his church, kind of in its early days, had the ground bought out from underneath them because a railroad company needed it to put their railroad in. It was kind of like, oh, our church is here. And they're like, yeah, too bad. The railroad's coming through. And they just took it away from them. And so they had to end up meeting at like a music hall for a while so they could get a new building and all these interesting kind of rough things happening. But one of the most lasting perspectives he gave was actually in the realm of a theology. He challenged the idea of God as simply to be seen as like this attributes of a distant perfection. Instead, he spent much of his time writing about God as a father. And this may sound something you hear that and you may not think that's very deep or even exciting. But at the time, this ruffled the feathers of people, even got into big theological debates like actual, you know, people sit down public debates over this issue of being able to kind of talk about God openly as uh, a father. And we should go to him as our father and we should see ourselves as his children and having that relationship with him. Uh, certainly throughout different times of history, people have seen God that way. But during the era and where he was, they weren't really viewing God as this personal father. And Canlish, you know, was making waves by saying, no, no, no. Uh, yes, he's this, you know, perfect, immutable, uh, omnipresent, omniscient God. But he has told us that we can relate to him as a father. Something that I think that we oftentimes use today that we maybe even take for granted that we're using that relationship today. But it was Canlish was one of the people that really kind of helped build this idea into our lives that, you know, whether you're doing evangelism, you're telling people about God, you say, hey, there's a father in heaven who wants you to come back to him like the prodigal son or whether you're just discipling people, all these different areas or you're just praying with your kids and saying, let's pray to the father. This is not new to Canlish. Other people had it, but he really kind of helped resurge it in its time. And so we can be grateful to him for that as well. The Sin of Carefulness And he said to his disciples, And so I say to you, do not worry about your life, like what you will eat, and do not worry for the body what you will wear. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, and they don't have a storehouse or barn, and God feeds them. How much more are you better than the birds? 
and which of you, through worry, can add to his height one cubit? If you then are able to do such a small thing, will you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They do not toil, and they do not spin. And yet I say to you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow thrown into the fire, then how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Do not seek what you will eat, or what you will drink, and do not doubt. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows well that you have need of these things. But rather, seek the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give charitably. Provide yourselves clothes which never grow old, a treasure in heaven that never fails, and where no thief approaches nor moth corrupts. For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Let your loins be girded about, and your light burning, and drew yourself to be men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, will find awake and watching. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself and make them sit down to the banquet and will come out and serve them. And if he will come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them ready, then how blessed are those servants. And know this, that if the chief of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken into. So be ready also. For the Son of Man comes at an hour when you don't expect it. Luke twelve twenty two to 40 There are two different types of worldliness, covetousness and worry. The Lord warns against both in these verses. The warning against covetousness comes from the incident which led to this parable. One spoke up from the crowd and asked for his judgment as referee in a question of property between him and his brother. The Lord declined to become a judge in this in short and even stern terms. Then he gives the crowd a lesson on the sin and danger of coveting wealth and counting on it, illustrating the lesson by a parable. But heaping or laying up treasure for oneself instead of seeking to be rich toward God is not the only way in which love of this present world works and manifests itself. Among the wealthy, that may be its common shape. But with the poor, who are the majority, it is different. Still, it is the same awful evil in either case. For is the very same spirit which in one state of life prompts the proud to boast that in another moves the anxious to question, what will I eat? What will I wear? It is the same worry to have some worldly portion gripped in your hand instead of a simple trust in God. In a society where not many of us will be rich, it is the other form of this flaw that conquers most of us. And so, when he proceeds to deal with that, the Lord turns from the general crowd of listeners to his own immediate followers. It is his disciples he addresses here, and he addresses them as his disciples. His whole reasoning with them is founded not merely on the fact of their being outwardly as disciples, but on the assumption of their being so in reality as well as by their profession. So in viewing them as his believing people, he urges four arguments against the sin of anxious worry. The Lord's first argument is founded on an appeal to creation. He asks you, his disciples, to consider God simply as your maker. He is the author of your being, the source and fountain of your life, the one who shaped your bodies. Ask yourself, he says, if he who gave you life may not be trusted for the food needed to sustain the life he gave, can't he who formed your body also be trusted for the clothing needed to keep it clothed? 
Let me put it this way. Life is more difficult to create than food is. If God gives one life, how much more will he give him the food needed for its support? The body is more difficult to form than clothing. If God forms the body, how much more will he provide clothing for it? And the argument grows stronger in force in proportion to that which is of greater difficulty. In a sense, the argument may be applied to the animals that we see perish, even in their case. The life they receive at first from God is more than the food they need if life is to be kept alive. The body which God makes for them, so wondrously organized outwardly, and even more wondrously animated from within, is more than the wool or hair or whatever else the outer skin protects and warms it with. God will not waste his gift of life, even mere animal life, by withholding what the animal needs to keep it from perishing. He will not form a fragile structure of perfect adjustments and exquisite sensibility and then forget to shield it from exposure and from harm. The argument is even truer for mankind, for he is in need of life that is sustained by food, just like the animals. But when the food goes inside of him, out comes intelligence that is similar to that of God. His body also is like that of any beast. It is material. But it is also the vessel of the immaterial spirit lodged inside of it. And so the body itself is capable of producing spiritual thoughts. Since man is so fearfully and wonderfully made, man may surely expect that the giver of this life will take care to feed it, that the maker of such a body as ours will care about it being clothed. But the full force of the Lord's argument is reserved for his own disciples. It is to you, his poor ones, his little ones, that the Lord especially and most passionately addresses it. Your physical life, which you are so regularly anxious about, is not just your created intelligences in general, but it is connected now through redemption to divinity itself, the material body about whose clothing you take so much thought is destined to be conformed to the Lord's own glorious body at his coming. Surely to you, the Lord's brief and sharp question should come home with no argument against it. Isn't life more than food, and the body more than clothes? You have received by God's hands the higher heavenly life as well as the lower earthly life, and received it at such a high cost through the sacrifice of his Son, and by such a process as the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Can't you then trust this God for the bread and water you must eat and drink during the few years of your sojourn here? You whose bodies right now bear the image of the earthly are soon to bear the image of the heavenly. Can't you trust him for proper clothing being provided for the brief fragment of time before they will need no covering but that of the silent tomb? The next appeal of the Lord is to providence, the providence of God over the creatures he has made. And it is two kinds. See what God does for the creatures that he takes no thought for themselves, verse 24, 27, 28. And consider what worrying for yourselves can do for you, verses 25 and 26. Most rightly, is this last consideration embedded in the middle, in the very heart of the other, between what God does in his providence for feeding the birds of the air and what he does in his providence for the clothing of the grass of the field, the somewhat stern, not even sarcastic, exposure of your helplessness comes in. And it comes in so as to point out the precise evil or sin that the Lord means to rebuke. It is the evil or sin of worrying. The birds of the air are incapable of worrying in this way, as is the grass of the field unable to worry. Both, however, are capable, as all God's creatures are, of working to the conditions of their survival and their well-being. And in some sense, therefore, 
They are all under an obligation to work to such conditions as benefit them. The ravens must, to survive, fly out for their food, seek it, and bring it home. The lilies, even stationary as they are, if they would grow, must bring in and rightly improve the kindly juice and moisture of the soil in which they have at their root. Both are capable of using the means of life and growth they have. The only thing that they are incapable of here is worrying. Of course, in your case, you also use the means around you to gather food and clothing. Your compliance with the laws or conditions of your being and your well-being must be different from what it can be in their case. It must be intelligent and therefore actively chosen. It involves free choice and responsibility. But for the topic of worry, the parallel is conclusive and complete. The argument is foolproof. What can all your worries do for you? It may wrinkle your forehead with premature wrinkles. It may whiten your hair while you're young with the wintry snow of age. It may waste and wither the bloom of opening youth and the vigorous strength of manhood. Worse than that, it may darken and kill warm love and turn the heart that once was tender into stony rock. But can it lengthen life by even a minute or increase height by an inch? Can it work to your benefit in regards to food and clothing? Diligence in your calling, a wise prudence in the spending of the fruit of your diligence may do much in this way. But will worrying do anything? Will mere anxiety about your affairs help you at all? Wouldn't it work better for you, even in the worst cases, by getting rid of the plans built by your worries and simply acting according to what is your actual duty? Do the ravens and the lilies seem worse for doing so? They have no worries. They simply work at every instant to the present will of God. They do so unconsciously, but you, as Lord's disciples, do so intelligently and believingly, casting all your care on him who cares for you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your requests known to God. Your worrying can earn you nothing, but working and trusting God's providence will earn you much. For it is immediately added, and... In your doing that, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peace, more satisfying than the ravens unsearched for food and portion. Grace is more beautiful than a flower's unconscious smile. The Lord would have his disciples to abstain from worrying. First, because in their case, especially the giver of the life and shaper of the body, may be relied on for food and clothing. And secondly, because the God who in his providence feeds the ravens and clothes the lilies must be even more interested in the welfare of his intelligent and redeemed offspring. Now, thirdly, that gracious relationship comes in more clearly. Verses 29 and 30. The emphasis here is on the word you. is an emphatic contrast. The argument or appeal here rises to a higher stage. From creation and providence, it passes on to grace. The relation which grace establishes between God's children and himself comes in. It is that of fatherhood and sonship. It is admitted, as it would seem, that they who are not God's children may be expected to worry, to seek after all these anxieties. It is only natural that they should do so. It is just what might be expected if we were in their circumstances. But you are different. You have a father in heaven. God is your father. And it should be enough for you in your worst trials to remember and to call to mind in all emergencies and circumstances that your heavenly father sees your case. 
that he knows that you have a need for these things. If I were lying down at night in a bare and empty cabin, my wife and children all but starved around me, and with no scrap anywhere of provision for tomorrow, it would be something, in fact everything, to know that a kind and generous friend, not far away, has been told of my situation. I might have no specific promise from him about my present situation, no reassurance of his thoughts to come for my relief, and without any knowledge of the way in which he might come to help me. Still, the thought of his knowing my need would soothe and comfort me, and in the cabin of my desolate destitution, I might lay myself down and sleep in peace despite it all. Your father knows that you need these things. Your father, who calls you his children, spared not his only begotten son, but gave him up to the death that he might redeem you from the position of criminals. He himself becomes the criminal in your stead, so he might make you in and with himself sons as he is son. Your father such you may call him your father, sends out the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He knows that you need these things. He knows all your needs. And he knows it as your father knows it. Shouldn't that be enough for you? How unreasonable, how unworthy, how inexcusable for you to be anxious and troubled about these things. You who have such a father who is so able so willing to charge himself with the burden of caring for you all. There may be some excuse or apology for the nations of the world worrying about these things. They who have no father in heaven, no one whom they can address or consciously or believingly speak to by that endearing name of Father. They do not know Christ Jesus, so they cannot join him and look up to his Father and their Father, his God and their God, so they may worry about tomorrow. They may be some excuse for their anxiety. I say, in an emphatic and awful sense, they do well to be anxious even. If only they were a hundred times more anxious than they are over their current situation. For they are just as absolutely dependent on him as his children are. They are helplessly dependent. They are at his disposal, just as in his hands. They cannot feed or clothe themselves. The earthly good things which they have, which are all the good they will ever have, are not within their control. All their worry and work about them, all their care and careful anxiety, busy, keen, contriving schemes cannot secure for them an hour's possession of them. A burst of wind scatters their merchant ships. A sudden crash brings their best gambling to the dust. A swift stroke of disease or trouble lays them bedridden. Worry as they may, plan and plot as they may, they cannot, any more than the poorest saint of God, add an inch to their stature, an hour to their lives, an extra minute to even their property of the things that they believe they own. They are not their own. They hold them at God's pleasure. And by what right? On what footing? On what terms? On patience. In long-suffering patience. They have no covenant right, no children's title, and they do not have anything similar to substitute or that is equivalent if it all should be swept away. They have only the stings of conscience and the arrows of an angry God. O oh, you orphans in the great Father's world, you who under the full blaze of God's manifested fatherly love choose to be fatherless still, yes, you should be anxious. 
Be careful. If you were more anxious, you might actually wake up to your dangerous condition. Tonight, your souls may be required of you. The things you covet and grasp and enjoy, your plump food and purple clothing, your worldly cheers and carnal ease, the things you seek after. No, even the worst of rags that you wear and the tiniest crumb of your food, the briefest moment of night's quiet sleep and day's warm light, all are yours by God's patience alone. You cannot hold them. They, they pass and are gone. And where and what are you? All these things the nations of this world seek. But you, you disciples of Christ, are not fatherless. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you in your deepest poverty or in your utter beggary and lack. I will come to you. I, who have brought you out of hell and brought you for heaven, I will come to you to tell you that your father, my father, and your father, my God, and your God knows what you need. He knows in the tiniest detail what can harm you, knows it all in the view of it being his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now to the Lord's crowning argument or appeal, verses 31, 32. And it may be seen in two ways, viewed as turning on the contrast between Christ's disciples who have God as their father and the nations of the world. It may be put in two thoughts. It is more natural and, in a sense, excusable for them to seek after and worry about these things. For first, on the one hand, they have no father in heaven, none whom they recognize and own as such, on whom to bring the care of these things. And secondly, on the other hand, they have really nothing else to worry about. But you, casting all your care about seeking after these things on your father, who knows that you have need of them, and what need you have of them are called to seek the kingdom of God in the simple, implicit belief that all these things will be added to you. This is how you answer it when your heart is harassed with all these worldly anxieties and when it crowds in upon your soul, as if it would overpower and overwhelm it. You meet these cares as God's children, not only satisfied to leave them all to your father who knows your need, but also seeking his kingdom. Like Nehemiah, you say, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This is what the Son of his love says to you, his brethren. That is the work of his loving kindness towards you. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Verse 32. And if so, what else won't he give you? He may keep you as his sons and heirs of the kingdom under a cloud for a time. The world may not know you, and you may often be at a loss to know yourselves as sons of God and heirs of his gifted kingdom. But you believe with the Lord helping your unbelief, that and nothing short of that, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Will your Father, whose good pleasure it is to give to you, as his sons, the kingdom, withhold the morsel of meat and rag of clothing you need for a little while till the time of your entering on your high inheritance comes? No. It is an argument, an appeal, going far beyond the mere necessities of food and clothing. It comes home to you as spiritual men. It assumes that while others seek after these things, the things that concern their food and clothing, their personal satisfaction and worldly honor and estate, but you have something else to care for. You have a higher aim, and you have a higher goal. 
You seek after something better than the nations of the world seek after, and you do so in faith, knowing God as your Father, and being sure that as your Father he means to give you no small reward, no meager measure of partial indulgence and grace, but the kingdom, the whole kingdom, all that belongs to his Son as his King in Zion. Surely, with such a prospect and in such a position, you have something else to do than to worry over earthly things. Something better to care for than meat and drink and clothing. Something higher to live for than comfort or contentment or wealth or honor. What leisure do you have for such worries as these? What room in your hearts for them? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now let these four arguments against the sin of worry or undue anxiety about worldly concern be brought to bear collectively and cumulatively pointedly and personally, on the conscience and heart of a doubting and distrustful child of God. Let him be recognized as really and truly a child of God, despite his distrust and doubt. The appeal to him will cover all who would ask to be associated with him in the recognition of it. Stand out, therefore, you child of God, you who believe in the only begotten Son of God for the saving of your soul and your eternal blessedness in heaven but who are still troubled with uneasy thoughts and restless longings about your worldly estate and prospects. You are rebuked on all sides. Creation rebukes you. Who breathed into you that wondrous life of yours, which on the one hand is shared with the lowest animal's heartbeat and is yet also capable of union with the highest divine perfection of being on the other hand? Who made for you that body which won't rot in earth like the irre irrecoverable remains of the beasts that perish, but will be fashioned like the glorious body of the risen Savior? Can't you trust him who has breathed into you such a life that is reaching to eternity for the few loaves and fishes that are needed to sustain it for a day? Can't you trust him who has made for you such a body, for the habitation above, that he can cover it while it lies waiting in the grave for glory? Providence rebukes you. See what he does for the creatures that are incapable of such worry. Grace rebukes you. You are not an outcast, forlorn and fatherless in the wild waste wilderness of a fallen world. That was your state once. And if it were still, it might excuse and even warrant all the anxiety you feel. But in fact, if rightly understood, it should move you to far deeper concern about your good condition. But not now. The one comes after this. But since you are now a child, a son, and at home with God as your father and your elder brother, his son Jesus Christ, will you not trust your father in heaven? Your father is calling you to be his son. For food and clothing, you won't trust your father? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for you, how will he not with him also freely give you all things? Glory rebukes you. You have something else to seek, beside and beyond the earthly cares that are so quick to trouble you. The kingdom of God should be occupying your thoughts. In itself and on its own, it is worthy of your whole soul being absorbed in seeking it. To be a tool in advancing it is for you the highest earthly privilege. To be partaker of its earthly blessedness is the heavenly reward and crown. Seeking that, it may well be expected that you should submit to its claims and anxieties, a all claims and anxieties of the lesser sort. All the while, because he who calls you to do so gives you the kingdom, 
that is secure to you by his sovereign gift. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Can it be any other way than his good pleasure to give you all that you can need till you reach your glorious home in heaven? Does not the greater gift include all the lesser gifts too? He gives you the kingdom now. It is as good pleasure as your father to give it to you in measure and in foretaste now, not as meat and drink, but as righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. What he gives you already of the kingdom in your sense and experience of your adoption as a son, receiving the spirit of his son in your heart, crying, Abba, Father, is surely enough to warrant reliance on him for all that the neediest son can ask of the most loving father. And viewed as the promise of the full possession of the kingdom, it may well give force to the appeal as addressed to the weakest and most faint-hearted, do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now the Lord adds to these arguments against carefulness two tests or practical instruction. The first test is generosity, a willingness to part with your materials, be it money or time or influence or ability of whatever sort you have. Are you willing to part with it or sell it for him? Sell what you have is to part with it freely and without hope of it being replaced as alms. Give alms, verse 33-34. These two conditions are implied here. Selling is a sacrifice or self-denial. Giving alms is bounty, mere free donation, irrespective of any prospect of return of any sort, whether in kind or in gratitude or in acknowledgement. This is a fair measurement of your being careful for nothing, to show if you are casting all your care on your Father in heaven, your readiness to sell what you have, which is self-sacrifice, and it must be mere alms, that is giving with no view to any benefit. It must be so as to show that you really can and do trust your Father in heaven, and that relying on him you are prepared at the call of charity to consider even more your present duty than your ultimate security from lack, and to do so with disinterested aim, not looking for any present repayment, but acting on the principle, freely you have received, freely give. It is more blessed to give than to receive, and not merely as a test of a right state of mind, but as pointing to the best method for developing and stimulating the grace in question. Let it be an active exercise. Let it have full power and swing. Let there be real selling and giving of alms not the pretense and name only, as when I cast in what I call my might into the treasury of a good cause, when it costs me nothing and does not throw me in the least more than I felt before on the providence of God, or when I may indeed sacrifice some personal good or what I regard as such, but either with a grudge or with a reserved expectation of some acknowledgement for my sacrifice, that there be real selling and giving alms. That will at once prove and perfect the habit of not worrying, but trusting him who is our maker, preserver, father. But this first test, even as explained and applied, is imperfect, and quick to be fallacious unless it is qualified or supplemented by the second test, for it may be the result merely of a natural disposition or the gratification of a natural impulse, the impulse of constitution, good nature, or reckless spending even. If it is to be really genuine, springing out of genuine trust in God, then it must stand the test to which the Lord puts it when he says, Let your loins be girded about and your light burning, and you yourselves be like men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, 
that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, will find watching for him dutifully. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come out and serve them. Verse 35 to 37. There must be longing, waiting, watching, working for the Lord's coming. For this good habit, this heavenly grace of not worrying, is no mere dreamy, listless attitude of apathetic contentment. This is no hedonistic slumber, no selfish sloth, taking pleasurable ease and letting the world do as it may. No, it is active service, busy zeal, earnest working, with eager eyes and laborious hand, with lamps burning all alive and alert on the lookout for the Lord's return. The Lord cares for you, that you may care for him. He relieves you of the charge of anxious thought about your own temporary welfare, that you may undertake the charge of anxious thought about his heavenly and eternal kingdom. His word to you is not merely, do not seek what you will eat or what you will drink, and do not be of a doubtful mind. But go, work in my vineyard, get up and do it, occupy yourself till I come, and behold, I come quickly. The sin of carefulness is a sin that I don't think gets a lot of time. And actually, though, uh, one of the reasons I was drawn to this sermon is because of how relevant I felt like it was in the lives of people today. I am a teacher and I work with students who oftentimes are very studious and they want to do a good job and they want to get A's because they're trying so hard to get that perfect scholarship or that perfect grade to that perfect university. And I, I looked at this sermon. I felt like, man, if I could just preach this sermon to each of them, they're trying so hard to be careful. They're worried so much about making a mistake. And I see it in ministries too. I've worked with ministries and worked in churches where people, they seemed very concerned. Oh, what, let's make sure we do everything perfectly by the book. And everyone's so afraid of taking a risk and making any mistakes and going anywhere that hasn't been gone before that instead of actually honoring God, they're they're lacking faith and they're not trusting him. And it's the opposite of the sin of recklessness or the sin of worry. It's the sin of over-carefulness where you're just preparing for yourself. You're just building up your savings. You know that you should be doing more for the kingdom. You know you should be giving more money to God's work. And yet you're just so careful and concerned about your own work and worried that maybe tomorrow God will forget his promise to feed you. And so I think that this sermon is actually extremely, extremely relevant to many of us. I was challenged by it. I could think of many people that I wanted to hear it. And I imagine that as you listen to it, you may have also been challenged by this thought on the sin of carefulness. Today's sermon was preached by somebody whom I actually know in person, which doesn't happen all that often. It was a friend of mine that I have uh, gotten to know over the past year in Indonesia, Nathan Fazal, and I really appreciate him for reading this sermon. He has a great voice, and uh, it has been a pleasure to have him read this sermon for us. At the top of the show, Troy mentioned a five-star review that was left behind. We were able to read that. We love being able to shout out people that uh, like our show. So uh, if you want to leave us a five-star review on your platform of choice, uh, it really goes a lot to help the show uh, surface in the feeds and the algorithms. Uh, and it's nice to hear from listeners. So uh, we encourage you to do that. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.